Hey friends, uh, we're back for another episode of How AI Built This. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, tech recruitment experts headquartered in Edinburgh. Massive shout out to them for this episode, actually. Um, we're obviously in the middle of a global pandemic, and rather than pulling support for things like this, um, they've absolutely doubled down and ensured I can do it remotely. So yeah, really grateful to, to everyone at Cathcart Associates. Today in the podcast, we have Sorsha Lorimer. She is the founder and CEO of a company called Trace. They're a data startup based in Edinburgh. They're in that kind of reg tech, uh, legal tech space. Essentially, Trace's mission is to make things like GDPR, data compliance, data governance, more bite-sized for organizations, more visual, more streamlined, and ensure people are following it, really. So Sorsha's had a really interesting career, um, working in digital agencies and then working for um, a massive corporate uh, in a bunch of different roles, um, always picking up new skills and adding to um, her expertise, basically. Um, so we get into that on the podcast um, and talk a little bit about Trace and the plans for the future. And that's enough for me. Uh, ladies and gents, please welcome to the show, Sorsha Lorimer. Thanks for coming on, first of all. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. We'll get into all of the... I suppose kind of nitty gritty of your career, but normally when we start, we, we kind of see where people have come from. Um, and you mentioned to me earlier today that uh, you actually studied politics. Yes, uh, a long time ago, um, and European <laughs> politics, which which has has changed infinitely, <laughs> apparently since then. So <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Yes, a little um, bit different. I bet you did that in Bristol, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, I, my, my kind of idea was to get as far as away from home as possible. So headed down for apparently for the nicer weather down southwest England. But um, it, it's nice, but it, it does rain quite a lot down Bristol. But yeah. <laughs> oh, I've heard good things. I've not actually been yet. Where did you call home originally then? Um, so I was born in Fife. Um, my my parents are a little bit alternative. So they had a kind of a commune situation um, in Fife, strangely, in Deepest Dark in Fife. Um, so we lived there for a bit. Um, and then we travelled around Europe for a bit. And then more or less Edinburgh. So I, I've grown up in Edinburgh and then went down to Bristol through uni. Um, and after that, travelled about a bit and find my, found my way back here. Lovely. Yeah, I read, uh, I found an article yesterday because obviously I take this podcast very seriously. So I do lots of research. And uh, <laughs> I found an article where you described your upbringing as quite hippie. Yes, my parents are um, a little bit alternative um, to this day. <laughs> so uh, yes, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm probably the straightest in my family. So I'm, I'm a bit of a saffy character. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to try and kind of act the part when you go and see the family then to try to pretend you're not not quite so straight laced <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly we, we've all got to rebel in our own way so yeah that that's me being a bit of a rebel <laughs> <laughs> um all right cool so yeah you did some politics um at university you mentioned that you traveled around a bit and then i think this is right you kind of started your career in uh, what i've kind of described as the wonderful world of digital agencies yeah, um, more or less. So after uni, I, I did work as a teacher for a bit in Tokyo. Um, so that teaching English as a foreign language. Nice. And then made, made my way towards agencies via, I worked for the NHS as a project manager um, on large scale hospital equipping. Um, so uh, quite unusual, but, um, but I really wanted to get into either publishing or agencies, wanted to bring that sort of idea of more publishing skills and creativity together. So yeah, I worked in a few agencies in Edinburgh. So yeah, really good, really good time in my life, actually. 
Nice. And you held kind of a few different roles, mostly around mm-hmm. kind of project management, client delivery, yeah. up to kind of director level roles. Did some of that experience, I think I might read this somewhere as well, but did some of that experience kind of open your eyes a little bit to essentially what you're doing now at Trace? Was that kind of like the foundations for it? It's it's so relevant to, 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 to how I run Trace. It's much more relevant really than the corporate side. I mean, in a way I could have could have gone from there to set, um, setting up a business because when you work for for a company when there's like say 60 people in the business you have there's nowhere to hide so if you're not pulling your weight or you're not working hard and um, you're not going to fit in or survive so I mean agencies are sort of famously filled with lots of people in their 20s working really hard and that's what it's like because you have to work long hours um, and you have to be quite multidisciplinary as well so part project manager part business analyst, part people manager, part client um, person, part creative, part technical. So the the current the, the theme that went through them was definitely um, digital. So it was always on the digital, more technical side in a creative space. But yeah, yeah. The, but that kind of blend of, of skills and just being able to get a project done um, has been absolutely relevant in the past um, year or two. Yeah, so I remember when I spoke to... Um... Uh, we've done quite a lot of work with digital agencies in the past and I remember speaking to some of the project people there and I said that the kind of you, you learn a lot in, in that world about having to just not you don't want to sacrifice things but you need to you need to get projects done it's not like one of these places where projects will run for years and years and years and maybe we'll see the light of day maybe it won't like projects when your agency side have to get done because there's a client paying for it at the other end yeah, it's it's all about the, the client. Um, and we also worked for the union. Um, and th- th- there's a real like, you know, Ian McAteer is I think from such and such originally, there's that real kind of the client is is king um, approach to agencies, um, which is a good discipline, because you you need to make sure that your you mean, your customer is always right. And, and I think that's 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 true. And that that stays with me till now to, to client services and workers being able to take a brief listen very carefully to the requirements um, and bring something together. And if there's a deadline, you, ha- you have to meet that deadline come hell or high water. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of sense of, um, of production, getting things done um, and working hard, <laughs> juggling lots yeah. of projects as well. hundred <laughs> percent. Are you also more likely to be able to say no to, to people, whether that be customers, uh, internal stakeholders, I don't know anyone really when you're that side, because like you said, you've got to sit, you've got to listen, you've got to hear their ideas, but it's also kind of like an opportunity to, to push back a little bit and have some of your own creativity, which I think maybe might be harder in a big corporate. I don't know. You've worked in both. Hmm. saying no in a big corporate yes it's different yeah it's very different very very different <laughs> um yeah so so it depends on the agency so I worked at agencies where it was more um project managery type where you would push back and then there was more that I would call it more old school agency where it is about the client's right yeah, and I don't okay. think one or, I don't think one or the other is right I, well I mean I probably go towards more of a client's client service I like that old school client servicing approach I like I like that attention, that that whole kind of experience that you give a client. I think it should be good. Um, I think you one thing you get from that experience, from taking brief after brief and working on project after project, you you know when the the project's going to go bad. So you know you know when when the client doesn't know what they want, when no one when the requirements aren't clear, when the when the brief is bad, you know it's going to come off the rails. So that applies to a creative project or to a technical project. You know, it's the classic. 
um, I want AI or I want blockchain, but why, what are the requirements? What's the reason? So that kind of art, the art of the brief just pervades everything. So you do, yeah, you do, you're kind of going, well, no, let's, let's, let's spend the time um, on that business analyst analysis phase. I think that's um, a critical kind of lesson from, from all of that. Um, in terms of, of saying no, um, I think it's, it's maybe a, you get more more of a sense of this is not a good fit and when it's your own business you can be more single-minded about that and say actually no actually this is not necessarily the type of thing that I want to work on in, a, in an agency you don't really have that luxury so it's quite nice then to work for yourself because you end up with working with people that you you actually really get on with and there's a, there's a really good um, chemistry and fit and things work well. No, I bet. Um, and then, kind of, before we get into exactly what Trace do, um, from kind of agency life, you mentioned going to that big corporate. So, I mean, you went on to one of the biggest corporates in Edinburgh, anyway, as kind of the head of digital. So, that must have been very different just going there, first of all, um, from that kind of agency world. And then, again, did that have a big part in what Trace has ended up just from learning about how they do things? Yeah. So, um, first week it was kind of uh what have i done um what what is, ed- <laughs> what is anyone saying <laughs> i don't understand what anyone is saying genuinely um but no i had i had i had gotten to a point with agency side so you know get to director level you're you're either going to start to run your own agency there's no really to go so yeah. wanted to, to to try client side um and stand life investments had been my client when i was at realized so it kind of makes sense had an under, had always had a kind of natural understanding for financial services, um. But yeah, no, just a, just a completely different language, um, and and way of being. I wouldn't say it's one is better than the other. It just might be more of a natural fit. Actually, probably agency side was more of a natural fit for me. It doesn't mean that I didn't get on very well at Standard Life. What, but what kind of kept me going was I was able to work in different departments um, and so that gave me that very rich experience. Yeah you seemed to do loads when you were there like it wasn't like you did a large stint of one thing like it seemed like you were essentially in charge of like I don't know loads of different areas of what is a very very complex business. Yeah so I was lucky enough to get on there they had like a talent leadership program so I got on that one quite quickly um, and through that, you were encouraged to go through different parts of the organization. So I'd started off in digital marketing. Then I was in working in IT and the sort of, you know, big upgrade projects and, and digital transformation types of projects. Um, was, then I made a very unusual move going into information security and reporting to the CISO. Um, and, and that was where I, I just was curious, you know, I wanted to see it from the other side. Um, Actually, I wanted to be able to win the argument um, because there were some certain projects that maybe risk were saying no to. I wanted to understand why that was such a, a point of friction. And so that was kind of like the genesis and the kernel of the idea. I was like, why, why is so, this is so difficult? Why is, it, why is due diligence taking, taking a number of weeks? Um, so I wanted to, I, I knew that being a digital marketer wasn't enough. Um, and I kind of got hold of this concept. I think I'd originally read it from Elon Musk about being a, not a specialist, being a generalist expert and kind of taking three areas and, and getting to know them and interrelated areas. And um, so, and, and I reject the idea that that is jack of all. Um, it's not, it's about kind of considering kind of closer related areas and, 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 and being able to see it from different perspectives. 
Um, so yeah, so because I, I I just don't think it's enough unless you're like a super super specialist, something particularly maybe you know, type of doctor or or scientist right now. Um, I, I don't think it's it's generally enough to be a specialist of one thing. I think you've got to master a few things. Um, particularly now you've got to kind of survive and and keep growing. Well, yeah, I was about to say. I, I mean, I think I've promised that I won't talk too much about the current situation, but. Uh, yeah, that's a really good example. If you've only, if you're amazing at one thing that suddenly two weeks ago is no longer needed or completely obsolete, then good luck. Um, yeah. And I think the people that are thriving have either pivoted straight away, either because they're just like incredibly flexible and keen just to crack on, or they've got more than one specialism, like you said. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a great example. I l- and I love that. I really love that on that pure entrepreneurial spirit of like right this is a this is a problem what can we do how can we flex really really quickly and it's all about that kind of growth and and kind of just giving it a go um so anyone who's critical of that i sort of have a a bit of an issue with unless they've done it themselves (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's look it back up um so i mean that that was a fairly whirlwind tour of what was a a pretty kind of distinguished career and then I think according to your LinkedIn anyway, kind of sometime around early 2018, January 2018, um, Trace becomes a a business. Had that been an idea that you'd been thinking for a while or was it something that kind of sprung into your head and you realized that it just needed to be done? So um, I had always wanted to be um, an entrepreneur work, you know, or, you know, working for myself in some capacity. So um, I grew up, um, with my mum in a always working from home you know so she was like a single mum with two kids and so that was her the best way to survive is to be able to kind of do that flexibility and work from home in that way so she was running um an events business um and so we were kind of because it was at home we were just involved in it so it was a very like you know getting involved and helping her promote her business and helping out at events, um, going to gigs and stuff. So it just kind of was a natural way of being. Um, and so I, I was always, I always had sort of part-time jobs when I was a teenager and, and little things on the side. So it was part of, of who I was. And, and I think it, it was probably quite late for me to start to do it. It was something about kind of approaching turning 40 that was like, right, I've got to do it. Now is the time. So there's a lot of kind of planning, planning and thinking about it that went into it behind the background. So it was the right time of life for me, um, but equally I probably could have done it, you know, 20 years before that. But yeah, so definitely that that experience. I like to take something which is either like some people perceive as boring or dull or difficult or just really broken and old fashioned. I like that kind of old stuff and meshing it with the new. So I was like, this this just doesn't. This whole situation just doesn't work. Um, and then when you look to data governance, it's like these are these are these different competing areas, and actually this should all be much more holistic and stitched together, and we can make this better. So that it was just a kernel of the idea, but it but it took work towards. You know, I've had to do some pretty tough, um, I guess, pivots in that sense that I you know I, t- I I wanted to make sure that I did it properly. So I got I became certified as a as a privacy professional in international data protection regulations. I sat some hard exams. Um I did um cyber risk management and uh, you know and, and it didn't necessarily come from that that background. Before I even thought about doing it, I wanted to make sure that I had the knowledge and the credibility to to back that up. So there was a lot of it was a long time coming in that sense. But then when I had decided to go, this strange thing did happen to me. Um, 
just just when I'd quit and just when I was leaving standard life, I had this word in my head, like infantry, infantry. And I was like, why can't I shake this word? And then infantry is is key part of what Trace is. So there, I think there was probably a little bit of just a, just a flash of inspiration <laughs> within that as well. So. Nice. I like it. I like how starting a business and leaving a huge corporate was your equivalent of like the buying of a Porsche when you turned 40. You just thought you're just going <laughs> to jack your job in and start a, an entire new company, uh, which, right, I, yeah. which, which I love um, and hopefully be more enjoyable than a Porsche long term. But I'm sure you've been asked this loads because I know the stage that you guys are at and uh, and um, you've done some accelerators and, uh, and things like that recently, which we'll get into. Um, but I suppose for people that don't know what Trace is all about how do you explain it to people yeah so um we offer software services and training um that makes gdpr um, more streamlined um, easier to understand and um, more visual more beneficial um, so it's all about taking something which is which is very clunky and difficult and complex and actually inaccurate you know so lots of different bits of paper and stitched together um, to something that that flows together and makes sense for business so it helps them understand and the legalities of, of where their data is, who is it with, isn't a safe place, visualizing that on a world map, um, and then making that process, particularly of when you're bringing in um, cloud um, vendors and data processors. So describe that as that kind of weeks and weeks of, of due diligence, making that much slicker. So being able to do a processor assessment in a smart way, being able to share that document collaboratively through a SaaS platform and securely, um, and then, you know, getting your, your data processing agreement um, and being able to e-sign that. Um, so just really kind of boiling all down the kind of bureaucracy in the process so that it takes less time and, and it's, um, it's more, I guess, just a more comfortable and collaborative experience. That sounds good. I mean, I remember when we first chatted and, and looking at what what you do, um, it's one of those things, it's actually one of the reasons I started the podcast was like speaking to companies that are doing things with kind of software data um, analytics to make like business and life just a bit easier um for other people because i mean obviously you get all these amazing stories about all this ai that's gonna like change the world and everything like that where most of it is just kind of headlines whereas like this can just this can really help big business make quicker decisions essentially is that right yeah, it was just it was born through um, what I saw in that kind of organizational friction and those pain points um, that I experienced. And yeah, I, it was it became just like a bit of a bit of a mission. It's, this is frustrating. It doesn't need to be this difficult. And um, why are we wasting all this time? And and actually, you know, as a big corporate, we were we, we were potentially wasting the, the small guys time as well. So you as a small SaaS business, and absolutely, I know this so well now, if you're kind of in the waiting room, going through due diligence, can you get this project? Six weeks is an awful long time. Um, and you can't afford to do that. So um, it was thinking about both sides of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was just became like a fascination of how can I make something that's, that's, that's so, that's so difficult, easier. Um, and it's also just a subject which I find, so I find cybersecurity, data security, data governance, legal, um, uh, all the legal aspects of it. I find it really interesting, but it doesn't set the world alight. It doesn't engage a lot of people. So but I think a lot of that is the language. So it's trying yeah. to read things and actually when you reframe things you go actually you, know, you can see then people's eyes light up so it's also more of that kind of guidance um and, and the, ed the educational angle as well so we do do i, I did training from the start um and it's interesting now because you know um 
I think training and e-learning is, is really kind of ticking up again. So, yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head because we're a relatively small recruitment business. I mean, we've pitched for huge clients getting to the point of kind of getting everything signed off. It's so lengthy opposed to when we work with, I don't know, like a trace in Edinburgh who needs some people. We speak to you about it. We sign everything up on the same day and then we get to work on it. Like that's what we're so used to. Um, and you're right, that kind of waiting six, eight, ten weeks for anything to be decided can really kill us a little bit. Um, mm. So, you know, it makes sense from that point of view as well. Um, and you mentioned GDPR. So, um, and actually, something else you mentioned that it, it doesn't set the kind of world of light. I suppose what you're what you're doing is supposed to stop those companies getting onto the front pages of the papers, though, for all the wrong reasons. Um, yes, you've seen, yeah. seen some horror stories of that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, and, and actually, I was on a webinar this morning where, so in in times of crisis, um, an emergency, people can throw the governance out the window. So that's we're not trying to encourage that whatsoever. This is really important because this is this is people's data, and um, this is your information, your photos, this is your credit card details. So when that stuff falls into the the wrong hands you know bad stuff happens and it's and it's stressful and it's also you know i'm very passionate about about that i'm also passionate about privacy as a as a human right um so it's it's about considering that we're not just trying to sort of slicken up and, and rush through compliance absolutely not we're trying to take out the paperwork and actually make it more accurate and more streamlined and beneficial for both both parties but and in times of crisis like i said at the moment um the worry is that it just gets forgotten completely and then it becomes detrimental. So an example might be Zoom. So you know, absolutely, oh, they're yeah. killing it. They're killing it. But the this is part of your brand, and this was the idea that I kind of you know was in my head as well before. It's like this brand resilience. These areas are part. The cybersecurity and brand they need to come together and you know and, and work together on this because it's it's the same thing. Your you know how secure you are. Your trust is part of of your reputation. And that's just become going to become more and more apparent. So yeah, so if, if you get this stuff wrong, and it's very easy to get it wrong, then you're going to trash all that stuff that you you built you built so um, you spent so much time building up. Um, and and that's that it, it's going to be a really interesting time. So you see sort of tech solutions rushing in like maybe to the NHS or into workplaces without any due diligence. So it's 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 thinking about how can we create a leaner process, a more agile process but make sure it happens. So when we're saying, okay, the data is protected, well, how is it protected? Where is it? You know, because it's obviously, it's far it's far too easy for it, it to, to leak into the wrong hands. Yeah, no, 100%. And mm-hmm. I think that's the problem. Everyone wants to try and fix this as quick as they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of understand, even just talking to you there, like why it will take a little bit longer with some of these solutions. Because yeah, they've got to think about all of that stuff as well. I remember a conversation I had uh, with Rob once, and I mentioned this to you earlier, but is it true that, well, not true, maybe we, that's maybe the wrong phrase, but I remember when GDPR was about to kind of be implemented, he mentioned to me that you're probably one of the very few people who've actually read the entire legislation opposed to just reading what this person put on LinkedIn once. Yeah, so I think he kind of, he, he saw me read the whole thing on holiday, so he, he <laughs> 
That is not a holiday. I know. This is the kind of geek I am. I am like a complete geek. But um, so he knows that I did. And <laughs> um, obviously, I've, I've sat qualifications as well, so I kind of had to. But I, but I, I, I like you know. I'm not gonna go say well. I'm, I'm stand up and, and say that I know something without actually knowing it. Um, but I think you're, very, you're you're on your own in that case, unfortunately. <laughs> I, <think laughs> I guess everybody some... wants to tell everyone they want to know everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. Well, when when it's your kind of like kind of core speciality, it's like yeah, yeah. There's maybe other subjects that you might kind of go, but anyway, um, at the time, so twenty fifth of May, two thousand and eighteen, and the two months before it, there was a lot of noise about GDPR, as you may oh, remember, it was everywhere, <laughs> and there was a lot of rubbish, um, and it was there was just it was caused so much confusion. There were so many blogs that were like saying, oh, consent is the only legal basis, loads of them. And mm. coming out sometimes from, from sources that you wouldn't have expected to come out from, I won't name any names. And um, so everyone jumped on it. Um, but I think having said that, I think anyone who's still in this game now knows their stuff. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, um, there I speak to a lot of privacy lawyers and they're, or, or professional, you know, sometimes people come from a legal background, sometimes they come from IT in different spaces, but um, who are amazing and who know it inside out and know CCPA inside out and all the case law. So so um, that was maybe more in the context of the time, but those those people who are GDPR experts um, kind of didn't hang around much longer after after me and they probably jumped on some other thing now i don't know zoom zoom oh. security expert or something like that no i think you're bang on i remember we had a laugh in the office that suddenly there was this rise of like i don't even know what their job titles were before but there were gdpr like program managers between like the months of february and may um where they were just like shelling their services out for like thousands of pounds a day to any company that would give them it to just tell them the things that they already knew about GDPR. Um, although I did see something the other day, I can't remember the exact title, I sent it to my boss, but somebody was looking for a COVID-19 program manager and it was just like a like a construction company or something like that. Like I just didn't, I don't understand how that's a job. Um, but yeah, you're right, they've, they've all kind of disappeared and the people that are still hanging about are, are actually experts. Um, all right, we'll get back to, to Trace. I, I mean, given that we are on a data podcast, and I always seem to forget that part when we're talking to people, um, or, or a kind of analytics podcast, I know that you and the company do have a kind of a, a pretty slick platform, uh, and it, it does use some sort of kind of data analytics behind it. Is that right? And. Um- so it's not it's it focuses on the on the compliance aspect so um behind it we help you work through so so we help the user um hide gdpr in the background so you don't have to go and do the work to to go and read the gdpr (laughs) when you use it so so behind it you're guided through the process of working out where your data is who it's with your data processors which countries are you know you understand then the global data protection regulations you can see your your country particularly if you your data sorry if you're using a lot of cloud processors you can see that kind of mapped out and where are they hosting that so um rather than the analytics side of it, it's more that we work, we, we have the legals and decisioning in the background to keep you right on that. Um, and then, you know, for example, which legal basis are you selecting? Okay, if you're selecting consent, then, you know, have you captured consent? Have you, have you if you're selecting legitimate interests and have you got an LIA? So it's, it's keeping you right on the legals, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. 
Uh, and then you kind of get a data health report. So if you don't have uh, data processing agreement signed, for example, that would be a legal liability. So we'll show you that as a gap and you need to go and fix it. Or if you're if you're using cloud processors um, and it's not the jurisdiction that they're hosting um, that data, that personal data is not in an, in an adequate location, um, then it shows you what legal um, transfer mechanisms you need to do to fix that. So it's it's not it's um it's something that kind of surfaces the risks and the gaps so you can act, but it does that in a way that you can kind of keep layering up and, and keep on top of, of the compliance. So it treats compliance not as a sort of one thing that you do once and that's it, bang, because that's not how it works. It's, yeah. it's about kind of rolling program of compliance. Um, and so it's shifting it from a compliance project to privacy by design as an ongoing discipline. Yeah, okay. Um, you mentioned the kind of, um people using cloud processors to have their data. That was a conversation we had with um, one of our clients, I think. And he mentioned like, yeah, I think he asked us the question, where, where is your data? And we said, oh, well, we've got a cloud-based CRM. So like they, they host it. And he was like, yeah, but where? Um, and we had no clue. Um, I mean, I think my directors did, but at the time of the question, we didn't actually know. So then it was one of those things that they go and go find out pretty much. Um, do you get that all the time when you're speaking to people? They just tell you that their data is in the cloud, so it's all secure because they use AWS. Yeah, you you do get a blank expression, and and so people do forget that you know the cloud is is you know set of computers in a different country, and and I think the industry's to blame for that. You, you know, the cloud. Well, it's 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 been it's it's made it very um, opaque. Um, the again, the language around it, the, the language around cybersecurity, the language around data governance. I, I don't I don't really like it because it, it kind of excludes people. Um, so I wouldn't blame people for not understanding that. And then the data processors themselves have been tricky. They hide stuff away in in terms and conditions in very wordy privacy notices. So the GDPR is a force for good because it's a force for saying for greater transparency and saying that your data is your data and you should know where it is. So it's saying, well, actually, as a data processor, you need to explain where where that is in the privacy notice. Um, so, uh, and so sometimes it's changing around, it's buried away. So it's all about, yeah, reading going back to that old fashioned thing. I remember as a kid, it was like someone had said to me, if you sign a document, always read it. And we've gotten so far from that. Um, and then, you know, we've got privacy professionals spending too much time having to read privacy notices. So if everything became a lot more transparent, it's better. So that's part of the mission with Trace is to make that more transparent. Making it more transparent is that we kind of tease that out and help you find it, but then we help, we visualize it for you. So by putting on a map, you, oh, you get that concept. Whereas, oh, it was in the, it was in buried in a document and we talked about the cloud and, and it was all confusing. It, it, to me, that the whole industry has been deliberately, deliberately confusing, um, and that's an issue. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Even that kind of simple way of looking at it, like when you sign a document, even now, if it's a relatively short piece of paper, people will read it and then they will sign it. Um, but everything on, like you mentioned, all the privacy laws and all the, even like the user agreements you get when you sign up for something now. Um, whatever it might be they're they're absolutely massive and i always kind of feel like that's on purpose like they can't need all of that information there must be an easier way of saying it um mm -hmm. and you i think you're right as well so a big thing that uh, you've mentioned a couple of times and it's on the website as well is looking at that kind of visualization of all of this so making it easy for your customers essentially just to digest it 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's how like you know I don't I don't know anyone who who doesn't want things in a in a visual way, even if you're you know a very logical person that that's how our brains work. So yeah, being able to kind of see it and make it more tangible because it, it's just that whole like data you know it's like our data it's just it's it's so far from removed from us that people don't kind of grasp it um versus when it's i guess was in a filing cabinet and all neat and all all organized <laughs> it's yeah, not right here so we need to kind of get that metaphor back of of having it just in order we know where it is we've got and you know and we as individuals should have control of it you must see some really scary stuff doing the job you do now Mm -hmm. just like um, companies that don't know where their data is like companies that have got data from the 30 years ago it's all saved on different people's files laptops they don't even have anymore like just all this crazy stuff that you hear about you bet you've seen a lot of that yeah i think i think um so if you look at like two of the principles of the gdpr data minimization and storage limitation so there's there's the one where people are, have not been getting rid of data so if i talk about um, the legal sector law firms, they might be thinking that they are um, being mitigating a risk and being risk averse um, by keeping hold of it just in case. Yeah. Well, if you don't have a legal basis to keep hold of it, then you can't. So you might have reams of information that, that now becomes toxic. So that whole thing, oh, data is always valuable. It's always valuable. So it's, well, well, no, it's not. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like that kind of detoxing, getting rid of it. Um, process so yeah I think I think there's like there's a real it's a real challenge and it's it's a, it's a practical challenge when you have a lot of legacy data and systems and um, just get grappling with what you have and, and and whether you need it whether you're allowed to have it yeah we just had that whole process where we migrated CRM about a year ago now actually um, and trying to get the data from one platform to the other was a bit of an eye-opener in terms of like what did we still need and if it wasn't clear or if we weren't sure it was like should we just get rid of it so that was nothing to do with me in terms of how we approached it, but I think that was a really helpful process in terms of like kind of cleansing our data, just because we had to migrate it. So we had to make decisions on what was being kept. Um, so that was probably quite helpful because our old CRM we'd had for five, six, seven years. So that's quite a lot of time to build up loads of data, especially in our industry. So it was quite good to kind of move away from that. Um, but yeah, I can imagine like legal companies and uh massive organizations that should have been around for hundreds of years that must be crazy what they have yeah i think a good a good acid test is the dsar which is a data subject access request so you as an individual can say okay company x give me all the information on me on liam um and so you can imagine if you had work there what a painful experience that is all the structured yeah. and unstructured data and finding the emails and redacting like like as in you know um hiding other confidential information when you when you send it back so that if you if you haven't had a dsar as a business um you should definitely um test run it to see because <laughs> it's a good asset test of, of of how controlled your data is and, and and how you can pull it together and also it's a legal obligation so if you get one you've got 30 days 30 days to comply with it. So you don't want to be doing the first one um, not having try run. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, I think we've had to do a couple because like like all these things, mm -hmm. um, you get the people that are kind of like almost too eager. Um, and in the job that we do, I mean, there's people's data is uh, quite easy to get. Um, so if you've, ever, if you've ever applied for a job or uploaded your CV, like you're, you agree to put your details on those job boards and until you basically take them off um in a lot of cases so we've had a lot of people asking where we've got their 
information when in reality it's because they've sent us it um, via an application um, and they've asked for all the data we've got on them and all this. But we've actually been quite lucky because everything's stored, so it's quite easy for us. Um, mm-hmm. But I bet there's a lot of companies where they just don't know or it's on a spreadsheet. Um, all right, well, back to Trace. It's now, well, just over two years, I think, um, that you've been running. How has it been... I suppose running your own business and maybe more to the point, kind of being the person that's essentially accountable for everything because you've obviously held very senior roles. So you know that kind of level of responsibility, but everything now comes down to you. Um, so have you had any kind of like key takeaways from that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, being your own boss must be amazing, amazing not to have a boss. I think it's incredibly hard not to have a boss. Um, it's, <laughs> It's, it, it's a bit of a luxury to have a boss because um, it's easier. You know, I, I had read something that Bill Gates had said about, you know, he's got all this stuff about being super focused. And clearly he's a, an unbelievably focused individual. And um, it was something about if, if you need someone else to make, to help you focus, you can't work for yourself. Um, and we're, we're in an age where you just get distracted all the time. We all do. Um, but being able to focus on your strategy without anyone, the client, you know, the boss, whatever it is, saying, I need it by this date, that's that's hard. Um, so it, it just took some mental adjustment to that. To, to now, now I'm in that place, but initially that that was harder than I thought. Not having a boss, <laughs> and so that's so that's what a key takeaway is like. Know that like what you think might be the be careful what you wish for. So what you what you might think is like the dream part of it, like not having a boss, might be the hardest part of it. Um, and yeah, just 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 get ready and really think if it's for you. Um, it's definitely hard doing it on your own. Um, if if you start off, I've seen you know worked you know like on the wire accelerator. There's a there's a couple of guys of like two or three. You, if you could get three of you, um, I think that's that's ma- the magic number. <laughs> if if you are a good fit, obviously, then that's yeah. to find. So you probably will have had to work together before, and you have to have com- complementary skills. But that camaraderie, emotionally keeping keeping each other going, sparring sparring each other on. And that's really important because there's there's days when you start doing it and you're on your own and all you'd rather do that day is go to a normal job and and collect a paycheck and have a boss. You'd much rather do that than what you're doing. But if if this is what if this if it's the course you pick, then, you know, you're going to stick with it and you're going to go through that. Um, and then you and that all evens out. You're you're the the, I guess that kind of you see you settle into that pattern. Um, But it's tough. It's really, really tough. No, I think that's a good. Uh, that's a good point. Loads of good points to make because I think yeah, it does look all. I think it's a little bit like what you mentioned about um, the like phrasing and the jargon around privacy. I think a lot of the um, there's a lot of kind of like sensationalism, if that's even a word, uh, around being a startup and being a founder and getting like VC funding and uh, and doing X, Y, and Z. Where in reality, like it's actually just really hard. Um, and the people that make a success of it do what you've said. You kind of you kind of have to pick yourself up sometimes and do it when you don't want to do it. Um, whereas I think there's loads of startups. So it's really it's very prevalent in tech, and I'm sure you've seen it even in Edinburgh. Like there's the companies that are always got the PR, they've always got the news behind them, um, and then like six months later they file for bankruptcy or whatever. So I can imagine that's because of the leadership they don't have that focus that you mentioned. Um, 
And that's something yeah. I think we found with home working as well. I don't know. Do you do you homework quite a lot? Or is this quite regular for you to be at home? Well, yeah, at the moment, no, <laughs> no. Obviously, at the moment we all are, but um, no. I, I before, um, yeah, I was quite a bit as well. So, um, so I think I was, I was speaking to a friend the other day, and and she was like, oh, you know, all these people are ruining my home working because <laughs> sort of used when you're used to working from home, you're you're used to a little bit of the solitude, and it gives you space to do stuff. And then I guess if you know, in her case, the team around her, sort of people were like wanting to chat all the time and have VCs all the time and, and message to compensate for not having that in the office. And yeah. um, like, sort of like, and sort of could potentially be distracting. So I think there's a whole universe of people now adjusting to that. And so your initial reaction is that you want, that you, you miss people around you. So you're, you're then like craving, you're over communicating yeah. um, until you settle into it and find your deep concentration again, which we all need, but you have to find it again um, uh, and, and just mentally adjust. So yeah, I, yeah, it's not, for me, it, you, used to, I'm just become used to working from anywhere, like on the train, in the, in, the, in, the, in the coffee shop, at home, whenever, you know, and just adjusting because you're on the go, you're like in meetings and, and you've only got a limited amount of time. So you just have to like work, there's no, there's no time to sit and have a chat on the train in lots of phases of the business. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that's it. Yeah, no, I, I totally appreciate yeah. that. I do a lot of traveling down to Manchester and, and uh, the north of England. So I've got used to working on the train whenever the Wi-Fi works or grabbing like, or finding my, my favorite coffee shop. So where I know I can get like a power socket and like an hour of work done. Um, so I, admittedly, I've not enjoyed working from home. And I said that to my bosses. And I think what you mentioned about, it's almost like not having a boss when you have to do it the way we've all been made to do it in the last few weeks. Like you, you're almost just like you have to sit down at your machine and wherever you work in your house and just get on with stuff. I mean, obviously you're accountable still because somebody else is paying your wages, but it's hard. Well, I certainly find it hard initially to sit down at nine o'clock and work till half five. That that just didn't work for me. So like I've tried to work around kind of my own pattern and see how I can like, I don't know, make the most of my time at home um so yeah i bet uh, doing that all the time and, and being the 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 founder is even harder i think it's about confidence i really do like i think most most things are about confidence in some way but it's like maybe you you, you that's what you're describing is you sound like a real self-starter so you say, oh, I, you'll make that i'll same, do the same output but i'm making a decision that i'll do it in these in these in these hours whereas maybe sort of I want to show that I'm working and I've got to work nine to five because that's drummed into me. And so I've got to, how can I, you know, show, can I, can I, how can I tell the boss I'm working? How can I show what I'm doing? How can I kind of be present without being here? So that's maybe where you've been maybe more conditioned or just like a lack of, a lack of confidence that you're going to be quiet for a few hours or actually you're, you're not feeling productive. So you're going to go out on the bike for an hour and then yeah. you'll do you'll do you'll pick up at nine o'clock and then do loads there and um, so i think um it's maybe there's maybe a generation thing for some people but it's also about having the confidence to know that you'll do the work um and you don't need to kind of prove it in that sense so i think there's a lot of adjustments in that in that space and people kind of finding their own rhythm yeah definitely and uh something i've started asking i don't really know why i haven't asked this every podcast um it was from listening to someone else speaking that i kind of picked up on it um but I haven't held quite a lot of senior roles and I imagine kind of built and managed teams and obviously now building your own team. Um, 
do you have any absolute kind of go-tos or, or, or tips when it comes to, I suppose, what you would class as a high-performance team? Because I think everybody has a different a different kind of reality as to what they would consider high-performing or what they would consider important when hiring a team. Um, but is there anything that's kind of stood you in good stead over the years? Yeah, so I have uh, yeah, I've, I've hired four other people, um, and then and then for myself, and so it's sort of different. So, um, I suppose hiring four other people, um, you're you're going through more of that kind of approach of of the the types of questions and and the fit. Uh, whereas for your own company, I think it does become a bit more instinctive, um, and this you know relatively small team you've got to feel that that you can connect and you actually and that that person genuinely gets the purpose of what the organization is about and connects yeah. with it uh, a strong a strong kind of push for me would be multidisciplinary i don't think there's rooms for people that won't be able to adapt in in the kind of organization that we've had or, or that kind of startup where you've got to be able to wear different hats adapt um, remain stoical and positive in in times of uncertainty. Yeah, That's a big yeah. one as well. So people, I think there's there are some people just not suited to a startup. It just might feel too chaotic or just changing or or are kind of too uncertain. Um, and so you get the sense of that type of person um, quite quickly. So yeah, I suppose in terms of high performing team, um, I'm I'm also just still learning. To be honest, it's it's always it's just something that you just have to keep learning um, from experience with and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but I think if, if someone doesn't feel right instinctively I think you know trust your gut um, I have made that mistake not with Trace but previously um, I got you know this funny feeling and then you interviewed someone and, and in this case you know a different person turned up when they started to roll which was which was an enlightening experience and after that I was like if you get if everything seems good but there's just a funny feeling go with the gut <laughs> yeah no i 100% agree we've had loads of meetings about this because as we've grown from like when i joined it like six people to now being like 30 people um or what roughly um we've tried to kind of tweak our interview process and our hiring process to be a little bit more structured um so we'll try and have some kind of situational questions we'll try and not be we're trying to not lean as heavily on instinct but i can't seem to get away from it um it's served us pretty well like if there's something telling you that you think this person will be amazing or maybe not the right fit for the company. Like, I think that's, especially at the stage that you're at, that I don't see any other way of it working. I mean, somebody like Standard Life can hire a couple of bad people in their marketing team and like carry the load. Um, and then maybe three, four months later, get rid of them and nobody will really notice. But like, you, you can't do that. No, um, no, no, and 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 it wouldn't, and it would just cause it would cause too much of an energy drain as well. That's where you've got to be careful. If if you feel like you're 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 carrying someone, um, it's just going to sap all your energy away. So you have to be quite kind of tough about it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And have you got used to? You mentioned um, when you work for a startup, you have to um, wear a couple of different hats. Um, have you got used to the day to day of like? you're going to be doing business development for half of the day trying to win new clients and then you're going to go do some like um, e-learning somewhere and then you're going to go uh, interview for someone to join Trace. Like, are, are those days still as manic or do you have slightly more structure now that you're a little bit further down the line? I've got a bit more structure. So it's been, it's been good to... Um... Uh, I've got a guy in, in Dublin and he's brilliant on content marketing and I was probably tr trying to do too much of that before. Um, I've always... 
I've never tried to do the tech. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a coder about, and I, but I, and I wouldn't go down that route. Wouldn't sort of go and sort of <laughs> do that. So that, that's always been kind of clear. Um, we've got good people on the team, like a brilliant um, lawyer. Um, so again, this, these are areas that I gravitate to, um, but shouldn't be doing because <laughs> there's there's a team there. So there's there is more of that. But there's still there's still different hats, and I do thrive on it because I fundamentally I'm a creative person. So sometimes I like that kind of jumping around and sparking ideas of each other. I don't really like to get stuck doing one thing. It's just not how how I kind of thrive in a situation. Yeah. Um, so jumping between projects and, and ideas and that cross pollination definitely works. Um, but nice. I do I, I am guilty of having tried to do everything myself and holding holding having held on to things a bit too long at the beginning um, and and so many people told me that and <laughs> i didn't necessarily listen so pass that don't... advice on yeah you can pass that <laughs> advice on to anyone that starts their own business though and there's no way they're going to listen because when you start something like it's, it's yours so for however long you're going to have to just learn that by yourself i think um i don't think there's yeah. any any way of stopping it i mean i'm sure some people have managed but maybe that's what you mentioned about having three people who've all worked together before and complement each other maybe that's where that becomes easier but when it's your own thing i, I can understand that um so i mean yeah we've, we've been through loads um and i appreciate we are kind of in probably the strangest of times that we'll ever speak um well i hope so anyway um but given that we're kind of i suppose almost at the halfway point of the year is there kind of a, a clear roadmap in place for the rest of 2020 and then beyond for Trace? I mean, what what does the kind of plan look like? So, yeah, our, our, our plans have been adjusted since this crisis. Um, I bet. And, but we are planners and, and I have a, um, a chairman who's, who's also very kind of clear and diligent planner as well. So we always have a roadmap, weekly plans and day-to-day um, and, and you've got to have also the confidence of, of having your strategy and sticking to it because you've got too much control as a founder. And if you jump around that, again, that's a kind of lack of confidence. So that I do believe in having that structure. So it might it's more of a pivot than a radical, oh, my gosh, throw everything up in the air and stop. Um, in our case, we're, we're in a good situation because ultimately the case for, say, for example, law firms using SaaS tools and, and e-sign documents is, is stronger. It might but there is a period of time that we're in at the moment where business decisions are not being made um, for those mid-sized organizations because they're finding a new way of working where they, you know normally you might have decision makers in a room and they can and they, they can go forward. So there is a period of readjustment for those type of businesses. And then we've got a whole kind of slew of, of businesses that are just in deep trouble. Um, fortunately, those type of businesses aren't really our, our target. So we're not, you know, going after restaurants and you know those yeah. type of businesses so that that would have quite a devastating impact and um, so it just means like a, a pausing on on business development on one strand but because we've got three pillars to the to the business so it's not just pure SaaS it's the software and the services um, and the training the e-learning side has, has picked up so it's just, it's an adjustment and so we're, we're going to be doing um, more of that and, I, and I'm so glad I did have having been on accelerators you do get pushed you get pushed towards two things probably in that kind of community um, not in, they've not done it in a negative way it's just part of, of that accelerator community push towards investment and push towards being more of a pure SaaS play um, and yeah. And some investors say, oh, I don't like the fact that you're doing professional services. Well, well, actually, 
in in these times it's 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 brilliant and i've been i was speaking to another legal tech business um yesterday we're saying the exact same thing professional services people still need it people are off business are adjusting they absolutely need expert consultancy just because you're not in the office you can do it in different ways is actually probably better so i can do that myself we also have um associates there too so being able to to draw on those pillars is, is is useful. And that all boils down to, if you, you go an accelerator and if you just go down too much towards the investment route, you sometimes might forget that this is about just running, being able, the basics of running a business, the fundamentals. You need to make money, you, you need to market yourself, you need to make the numbers work, you need to pay people um, and have those foundations first and prove those things, I think, before you really start to to raise the money but then again yeah. you know you might, someone might have an absolute genius idea and, and maybe it needs money thrown at it as well so that's just that's that's just my take on it I th yeah i would always lean on your side of getting the business right and getting some money into the business before you go throwing away 60 percent of your idea or whatever but yeah you're right there'll be cases where that's important um do you think that i mean this is certainly what I'm hoping for our business, but do you think that we don't really know when this is going to be over, but let's say in three, four months time, we start seeing like semblances of normality. Um, and by the end of the year, it looks a bit more normal. Is there going to, is that going to be quite good for your business where there's going to be a sudden like surge in projects? Hopefully. Um, both scenarios are, are okay for us. Like I think if, in a way, if some of my, my, my target market are just become more permanently working from home, then they're going to rely on, on, on our tools more. Um, and they, they, will have, they will have to adjust to how they make decisions about bringing things in or making change. Yeah. Um, but I think regardless of if the crisis, say crisis over and lockdown over in a certain amount of time and then go back, I think people's habits will change. People will realize that it's good to work from home at least half the time and now I can do it and now I have the tools or maybe getting rid of some of the tools and getting better tools in or whatever it is. Um, so I think either way that, that plays through. I'm not sure about the surge in projects. Um, I've been speaking to a guy um, events and they're saying, well, once it comes back, everyone will want to go out again and then the, the events will just pick up again. I think that's optimistic. I have to, I, I think this is going to be the worst recession I in my lifetime. This is going to, this is already brutal and it's going to be absolutely catastrophic. Um, and it's going to be deep and it's going to be hard and tough for people. People will have less money. And for the, some of the industries where it's not affected yet, it will do. So there's been some softening measures. Um, but that that's not to say there's all doom and gloom because great companies spring up great ideas creativity springs up in a session but our economy and our business it will be it will be different so there will be there will be casualties and um, so i think i think it's going to rumble on i think right through the year and um, yeah 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 but it's hard to make any predictions right now <laughs> but yeah yeah that's, that's the strangest plan. that's the strangest part i mean given that we're at the we're almost at the end of kind of the first three weeks of lockdown, but obviously that looks like it'll be extended. Um, I think the biggest problem a lot of people are having when I'm speaking to them certainly is that there's just a lot of uncertainty. So um, even if people knew that it was going to be the end of the year until we saw some sort of normality, like at least that's like something to work towards. I think people are wired like that. I don't think they like not knowing. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember like reading something about is that it's the some the guy he'd, he'd been in a prisoner war camp or something. I don't know who he was, um, but he said actually it's the pessimists that get through. And he's like, really, it's the pessimists. Surely it's people that are all optimistic. But he said in the long term situation, like 
prisoner of war. And if you're too optimistic, you run out of steam because you <laughs> want to know. You want to know when it ends, and you're fight, you know, and then you're like all happy and all positive, and then it's kind of like you dip. But maybe if you're a bit more grounded about it, you say, well, actually. Um, you dig, you can get through and kind of hold it, hold it through, and, and find that stamina to get through the situation. So I think that's what people have got to do now. Um, so uh, there are there are certain certainly people that were that are being were very super optimistic about it at the start, and I think it's probably better to kind of go to temper that a little bit and just try and accept the situation and, and take each day as it comes. Yeah. Um, I think that's good advice. Um, all right, and just to to finish off, then um, where where can people find Trace um, and you? Where can they? Yes, <laughs> online, digitally. Yeah. Um, well, in normal times, <laughs> um, we can be found in the base centre, and we also have a base in London and in Dublin. Um, but you know. Now, obviously, um, tracedata.co.uk um, can find me on LinkedIn. Um, Lewis has obviously has kicked us off on Twitter and Instagram as well. So digital channel is all good. <laughs> Lovely. Um, all right, cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I'm excited to see what Trace do, well, I suppose in the short term, but also long term. And we'll definitely keep an eye out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was a fun chat. Uh, very different to what I've had on before. And I think what Sasha and the team are doing. We've maybe touched on this uh, in the podcast, and um, it might not sound super sexy um, and uh, kind of really complicated neural networks and AI and machine learning. But what they are doing is potentially saving a lot of companies from being on the front pages because they've not done the basics um, and they've not taken it seriously when it comes to data governance, data compliance, um, which I think is going to be more and more important, especially nowadays. So yeah, it's another great example of why I started the podcast, um, shouting about companies like Trace, um, doing really cool things, expanding from Edinburgh into Dublin and London as well, and, uh, and having someone like Sasha at the helm who's just uh, kind of a real ball of energy. Um, so one to keep an eye on for sure. Um, I, I, thanks again to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring the podcast. Um, obviously couldn't do it without them. Um, so yeah, until next time, folks, see you later. <laughs>